Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Kit is out of the office. You can catch us here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station at the same time, but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org podcast or find us on your favorite podcast app. Just say, Alexa, bring me the Bridge Builder Show, and it's amazing how Alexa can uh, provide you with your Catholic advocacy needs. We'll also answer your questions today in our mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. And finally, on today's Bridge Builder program, we'll provide you with a practical way you can start making connections between faith and public life. We're joined on the line today for an important conversation about economics and the economics of the family and economics of the worker by Oren Cass. Uh, Mr. Cass is a graduate of Harvard Law School and the executive director of American Compass, whose mission it is to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the nation's liberty and prosperity. Prior to founding American Compass, Mr. Cass held roles as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and was the domestic policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. His writing has appeared in many outlets, including National Review, The New York Times, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and The Weekly Standard. Oren Cass, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're executive director of American Compass, and we said a little bit about its mission, but it's restore an economic orthodoxy that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry. For those of us who are inclined to keep their orthodoxies confined to the religious sphere, what is the economic orthodoxy that's reigning, and what do you hope to replace it with? <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know, I think in our final version, we tweaked it and went, went with economic consensus instead of economic orthodoxy. So uh, we can we can speak. Oh, okay, those, very good. <laughs> um, a, a, a fair critique, but uh, I, I think it's exactly the right question. Uh, now I'll go back to the word. There there is an orthodoxy that governs the way that I think policymakers and economists and politicians uh, talk about and and the media reports on uh, our economy and and obviously so much of public policy these days is, is about the economy and, and about economics, that it really guides the way that we, we think about our public life and, and the, the opportunities to, to make it better. And in my view, you know, what has come to define the, the consensus, particularly on, on the right of center, is a form of market fundamentalist. It's a belief that not just that free markets are good, but that the free market is always good and more free market is always better. And where we have problems, they are probably problems because of government. And the solution is simply less government. And there are times when that might be true, but, but there are also times where it isn't. And, and I think that kind of fundamentalism, at the end of the day, it isn't, it isn't conservative and, and it isn't really in keeping with the American tradition. And, and so we would like to, to, to shift that thinking towards something better. And market fundamentalism, to use a religious analogy, because that's our show and our audience, you might say that the invisible hand functions much like the Holy Spirit. It's like the, the guiding spiritual force that produces the optimal results in things. <laughs> so it's a, the market fundamentalism term, I think, is a, a useful one for, uh, from that perspective. What, so what, what do you hope to replace that uh, neo, neoliberal economic consensus with? What do, we, what do we need as an alternative? 
Well, I think we need to recognize that you know there there are very good important reasons that we that we like markets and and they are the best way to organize our private sector, um, but but that they are not all powerful and always good. There there are some things that markets simply do not do and do not provide for, uh, and and then even more importantly, there are things that that markets are actively destructive of that we value as well. You know the the conservative coalition that that is so values both the the dynamism and and innovation of the market and the the stability of and, and foundation of the family and community there's real tension there and and I think we've allowed it to get out of balance and so what I think we need to do is recognize that for markets to work well they need to be channeled that the pursuit of profit can be a force for for the common good, but it isn't always. And so to make markets work well and, and ultimately serve the common good, we need to be really attentive to the kinds of rules that we want to put on them, the kinds of constraints that we want to have on corporations. And sometimes those are legal. Uh, sometimes those are economic. So we want to give customers and we want to give workers power to emphasize their priorities against those of the corporations. And then sometimes they're, they're moral and social. You know, I think there are very important values that we've lost sight of that we can reassert and that we can say that to be a good businessman is not merely to earn as much money as possible, but, but that what we want to honor is, is a certain kind of productive contribution that, yes, earns money and, and builds a successful business, but is also successful for, for the workers in their communities. You're highlighting a, a truth that the Catholic Church has made clear for the last few centuries in its social teaching, which is economics is not simply a value-neutral sphere in which technocrats rule the day or which we allow the markets to create optimal outcomes, and it in fact has to be channeled toward just ends. And uh, there are normative and moral questions and perspectives that need to be brought into that discussion. And you highlighted that when you use the term the common good. Say more about that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's funny. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a Jewish kid. My, my parents actually uh, grew up in Israel. And, and when I started doing this work and, and especially had the first draft of my book done, some of the folks who were giving me comments on it said, you know, this is really fascinating. This, this really sounds in, in Catholic social teaching. And I, <laughs> I said, wow. I'd better go read about that. That sounds really interesting. And, uh, and, and so, as you said, that's not the direction from which I come to a lot of this analysis, but I've found it to be an incredibly important and powerful lens to view it through. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of delighted to, to be a fellow traveler in advancing that point of view. You know, the, the, the metaphor that I find really powerful as we think about the, the common good and the role of the economy uh, is to think about sports. And, and, and it's a little bit of a funny comparison, but, but I, I think it works quite well, which is that if, if you think about how professional sports work, you know, we, we set up these leagues and these elaborate games with all of these rules, and we ask the players to compete and try to win in the game. But at the end of the day, the point is not to win the game. It, it doesn't do anything for any of us when, when the players win the game. We, we set it up that way and ask them to try to win the game because it provides entertainment and joy for everybody who's watching. And so 
you could set up a sport that was horribly boring. It could be very competitive, but it could be horribly boring to watch and, 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 and nobody would want to. And in fact, over time, players in our sports find ways to win that aren't especially entertaining. And we have to change the rules. You know, in, in baseball, they raise the mound or they lower the mound. In, in basketball, at one point, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was then Lou Alcindor, he became so dominant in college that they banned dunking. And then later they realized, actually, we should probably have dunking. The fans would love it. But in the same way, when we think about our economy, we want businesses and entrepreneurs competing, not because whatever they do that's competitive is, is good for its own sake, but because we think we can set up a system where all of that competition is actually going to produce goods for everyone. And, and if it's not working that way, without rules, it won't work that way. <laughs> we're we're going to have to set up rules for the game. And then we have to be attentive to them and ask, is this game generating the, the, the outcomes for everybody that we want? And, and if it's not, then th there's no law that says that that's how it has to be. We, we can and we should do something about it. Well, that's a really helpful analogy, I think, for folks to think about economics and, you know, what are the rules of the game? What are the results that they produce? Are these good results and, and are they consistent with the results and ends that we're looking for? And that might be distributive justice or the well-being of the family or the good of businesses or a new industrial policy, as you've argued for. So that's I think that's the sports analogy is a helpful one. You know, one trap people might fall into is to say, on the other end of things, perhaps, is that, well, you're talking about families, and the well-being of the family is really a cultural and behavioral issue. What does that have to do with economics? So from your perspective, what role does economics play in family stability and family well-being? Well, I think it's absolutely true that, you know, family is a cultural and, and a behavioral issue, but that doesn't mean it's only a cultural and behavioral issue. You know, economic pressures and, and choices have huge influence on people's decision to form families and, and then the stability of those families. I think that's something that people generally recognize is intuitively true, that as, you know, young people are, are figuring out their their path in life and trying to form relationships, deciding whether to have kids. Obviously, economics is going to be a part of it. And, and then even more so, economic strain can, can be an, an, an enormous strain on a family. Um, but we also have a lot of very good economic and social science data that confirms that this is true, that particularly for men, if they are unable to find good jobs that are going to allow them to support a family, they're less likely to get married and have a family in, in the first place. And then especially that, you know, unemployment is, is an incredibly strong predictor of divorce. And so I certainly think it's true that these things matter. The economic circumstances that we create matter. And, and then I also think it's important to, to think about it a little bit more, more broadly. You know, you can do the kind of very specific economic analysis and see, you know, does a 3% does a change in this wage lead to a 1% change in the marriage rate? You can do those kinds of studies, but, but I also think it's important to step back and recognize that as we have moved away in this country from a model that says a single worker can support a family, one of the things that has necessitated is flooding the zone with a variety of, of government programs instead. 
and 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 in some respects those are needed you know if if people can't support their families i then i'm glad that we have government programs available to support them but the more that you make that trade off the the more you end up in a situation where you're you're saying well marriage isn't needed marriage is, is optional to to the man who might have been working a, a, a not at all glamorous job, the value of which was to, to put bread on the table for his family. Well, now, if, if there's going to be bread on the table either way, then you've stripped a, a lot of the meaning and dignity from that job. And so, you know, even when you get into what, what are much more cultural and, and behavioral topics, I think you still find that they're they're very closely connected to uh, to the economic direction that we've gone in, I mean, especially when we ask, well, what can we do about it? I don't think you're going to pursue a government policy that's going to suddenly change the culture. But gosh, there's a lot we can do to to try to build an economy that's going to work for more people. What's interesting about your perspective, and I think a lot of people find compelling, is the sort of both and dynamic that we try to highlight in Catholic social teaching, which is these questions are both uh, cultural and behavioral, but also have an economic nexus to them as well. There's a economic fundamentalism on both the right and the left that says economics is everything. Either it's we need status solutions or market-driven solutions. But then there's also another perspective that says family fragmentation is irrelevant. And then on the right, family family fragmentation is everything in these questions. And I think what you're doing is combining a sort of both and uh, perspective on these things that really resonates with people. Yeah, and, 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 and that's, it's, you know, both and is sort of the, the opposite of fundamentalism. Um, the, what, what I think we have to acknowledge is that, that these things are, are hard. And, and then something else we have to acknowledge is that government's not going to be able to, to solve all these things. And, and I certainly don't want to be interpreted as thinking, well, you know, it's just a matter of, of coming up with the right set of government programs. But I, I do think we can, you know, going back to where we started on that idea of the orthodoxy or the consensus, I, I do think we can move to, to a consensus that, that thinks more in these terms and that then at least shapes our public conversations and shapes the development of policy in ways that could be a lot healthier for, for families and communities. Well, that's interesting that you should mention that in terms of a policy consensus, because I think one could listen to what you're saying and say, that's a type of conservatism I can get behind. It's uh, focused on families and family well-being, but it also talks about the economic dimension. I also think it's something a liberal could get behind and say, look, this is economics and the support for the family is important, but we also need stable families as well. It's something that could appeal to both sides and, and honest liberals and honest conservatives of a certain stripe. But at the same time, it seems absent from our public discourse and absent from the focus of our political parties, given that it could speak to the majority of Americans in a useful and pragmatic way. Why isn't this being offered in terms of our uh, political discourse and in terms of the choices that we have among elected? officials. Who's talking about these questions? The, the flip side of things being both and is, is that you start to acknowledge that there are a lot of trade-offs. And something that the current consensus tries to pursue is the idea that, that we don't really have to have trade-offs because as long as we maximize our economic growth, then we just have to redistribute enough and, and everybody can be better off. 
and and this I, I I call this economic piety. I guess I guess I've got religious references in all my um, my my little terms, but you know you you've probably heard in politicians in, in both parties talk about this idea of the economic pie, and it's this idea that kind of if you imagine the economy as a pie, and as long as we grow the pie bigger, everybody can have more pie. Now we we will fight about how we to grow the pie bigger and how much to slice it and, and reapportion it between plates. But the assumption is, as long as everybody's getting more pie over time, everybody's happy. The problem with that, as we've been discussing, is life is about more than pie. Just just because people have more stuff than ever doesn't mean that they are, you know, building strong families or, or in stable communities or, or feel like they can be productive contributors. And when, when you start to ask about those things, not everything is a win-win you face real trade-offs. And so when you try to translate what we're talking about into a policy agenda, you know, just to give you a couple of examples, one thing that, that's really tough is education. I mean, we've embraced this kind of college for all education system that actually does not work at all for most people. Uh, now, who, who it works quite well for, generally speaking, is, is the upper middle class who has kind of converted our public high schools into college prep academies and then channeled literally more than $100 billion a year of government money into subsidies for college. But if you're the majority of families and, and young people who still aren't even going to earn a community college degree, that's a horrible way, way to run an education system. You should be giving much, much greater, even, even primary priority to non-college pathways to saying, look, we think it's tremendous if you're going to be successful in college and want to go make that investment. But our public commitment is really to making sure that everybody, regardless of their academic aptitude, can develop basic skills and something that's going to lead to a good job and get them ready to build an adult life. Now, I, I think that's, that's the right way to go. But, but as soon as you put the trade-off in those terms, you can very quickly imagine a lot of people who are, are not going to be on board at all. So that's the kind of trade-off you face. And, and then one other one is just, just with respect to globalization. I described this idea that we need to be able to put constraints on businesses and, and channel them toward the, the kinds of activities we need. Well, one of the most important of those is telling capital, telling the investors, telling the entrepreneurs, you know, you need to build businesses that are actually based on using American workers, on employing the people who are here. I think we would have much better economic outcomes if our laws focused businesses on doing that. But obviously, there are a lot of other people in other countries, potential immigrants, business owners, who don't like that kind of constraint at all. And so those are the kinds of places where I think the rubber really meets the road and, and where we've been making one set of decisions that's worked out very well for some people in the economy, but where we need to make a very different set if, if we're actually going to advance the the kind of vision that 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 I've been describing, and and as you said, that that could have fairly widespread appeal. We're speaking with Oren Cass. He is executive director and founder of American Compass, which seeks to foster a new economic consensus that seeks to bolster family and community. Mr. Cass, you're also the author of the book, The Once and Future Worker. Tell us a little bit about what your argument is in that book and what we need to do in a dynamic economic environment to, to foster the well-being of workers, of which most of us are one. <laughs> well, 
What you just said is, is exactly the point of, of the book, that, that most of us are workers, um, or at least certainly most of us live, live in households that, that rely on the well-being and success of a worker. You know, as we've been talking about, as, as our economic thinking became so focused on, on this idea of just, you know, we're going to grow the economic pie, everybody's going to have more pie, in formal economic terms, the analysis focused on what's called consumer welfare. The idea was that, and, and the idea still is, that the whole point of economics is to make you as well off as possible as a consumer. And so that means uh, the more cheap stuff we can get from China, for instance, the better. And that means that if you can't actually work, but we've become wealthier as a country and we can just mail you a check, then you could be even better off than before. The argument of the book is that Yes, we are consumers, but, but we are also producers. And those two interests can be in tension. And it's not your typical tension between, you know, one special interest group in Washington and another special interest group, because it's, it's a tension within each of us. And in focusing only on the consumer interest, we lost sight of what I think in, in a lot of cases is, is more important to our well-being, that that even just as individuals, you know, our role as productive contributors, the dignity and, and respect that accrues to having a role to play and people to serve uh, and, and something to accomplish, that, that that's at least as important to our well-being as how much stuff we have. And again, I think that's intuitively true. And, and, I, and, and I think the, the research backs that up. It's critical to our, our self-esteem, our emotional well-being, even our physical health at the end of the day. And then as we've been talking about, it's, it's vital to the health of our families and communities. And so as we evaluate the success of our society, the success of our economic policies, we need to be asking, is what we're doing working for workers, not just is what we're doing working for consumers? And, and I think if we, if we focused much more on how things looked for workers, people would be happier <laughs> and our, our society would be healthier. Uh, and in the long run, frankly, our, our economy would also perform better and, and we'd, we'd be in a position to consume more and better stuff, too. So these are not just macro level policy decisions, but the point you're making is that we need as consumers and economic actors as individuals and social units known as families evaluate our choices in the marketplace, in our employment, in our consumption and consider how these are impacting others on a whole variety of levels. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really important point. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a policy wonk, and so I'm always drawn to the, to, to the macro questions. But, but the last chapter in the book gets, gets to exactly what, what you just described, which is that there is a cultural component of this, and one that, that we're all sort of accountable for, both in our own lives, in what we make important to ourselves, in, in what we model for our children, and then also in, in the cultural messages we convey more broadly. And, you know, I think it, it, it's really striking. It was, unfortunately, it was right after the book came out. But, but you may remember a couple of years ago, there was a, a big controversy, probably too strong, maybe a kerfuffle, when a former star actor from The Cosby Show was found bagging groceries at Trader Joe's. And someone tried to, you know, photograph him and put in a tabloid to, to kind of make fun of him. And, and this became a, a whole thing because people said, this is terrible. This is job shaming. You know, everybody stood up and said, this is awful. If, 
you know, this guy is, is doing a job that's useful and is supporting his family. And how dare someone try to make fun of him for it? And, and at that moment, when people actually were focused on this question, we all agreed, right? Like on so many culture war issues, when, when you really focus in, that just heightens the disagreement and people get angrier at each other. But this wasn't one of those. There, there was no one on the, yes, we should make fun of people whose jobs are not glamorous. Everybody agreed that if, if we actually focused on this question, it was really important that we respect and value all kinds of work and, and, and the role they play in allowing people to contribute and, and to support themselves and their families. The problem is it's just not something that we focus on most of the time. If you look at what, what everyone in Hollywood then goes back and makes shows about, they, they completely ignore <laughs> typical people and, and working class issues and jobs or, or play them for punchlines. And so I, I just think it's something we need to focus on more and recognize that so much of our well-being as individuals and, and as a society is tied to, to how we think about work and, and how we make sure everybody can, can do work. This, this has really been a fascinating conversation, and I wish we had time to delve into your thoughts on a new industrial policy <laughs> for, for the wonky folks in the, in the audience. But we'll have to save that uh, for folks uh, to take up the next step and dig into some of your writings and your book. Where can people, people go um, uh, to learn more about American Compass, Oren? Yeah, thanks. Our, our website is AmericanCompass.org, and you can read about industrial policy and, and all the rest of this stuff until you keel over. Uh, and, and we'd love to have folks come check it out. Well, great. Oren Cass, one of the great public intellectuals talking about the well-being of workers, the well-being of family and community. You can check out, again, his work at American Compass, AmericanCompass.org, and his book, The Once and Future Worker. Oren Cass, thanks for coming on The Bridge Builder today. Oh, this was great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a good one. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into our mailbag. Unfortunately, Kit's not with us today, but I will open the mailbag and read the question here. It says, I've heard about Catholic schools around the country not being able to reopen due to the financial pressures of COVID-19. Is there anything that I and other Catholics should be doing to help ensure our Catholic schools here in Minnesota can stay open? And that's, of course, an excellent question, one that we've dealt with somewhat before on the show. And it's it's important to recognize that the response to COVID-19 has been a community response. Everyone's doing our part. Everyone wanted to flatten the curve. We've all social distanced and limited the size of our gatherings and our activities to fight the spread of this virus. And that includes our schools. As our schools start the new academic year, not only are they going to be facing challenges of declining enrollment in some instances because the economic pressures that people are facing due to job losses, but at the same time, they've had to incur extraordinary expenses and costs mitigating the effects of COVID-19, making sure they have clean spaces, creating mechanisms for remote learning and distance learning. And these are costs in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's a perception that Catholic schools and other non-public schools are these well-endowed financial entities that have lots of resources. In fact, they're mostly hand-to-mouth ministries that get by on very small margins or unable to cover payroll. So when public programs are made available to cover the cost of COVID-19 and to mitigate those challenges, they should 
should be made available to public schools and non-public school students alike. And so that's an important advocacy point is that we should get equal treatment in Catholic schools and in non-public and public schools alike. And that's as these programs are being discussed, whether it's federal stimulus dollars or whether it's state-based resources as well to address COVID-19, these are public health funds and not education spending. And so those funds should be directed to helping non-public schools and non-public school students just as much as they are to public schools. On this issue on our website, go to mncatholic.org, and under the Take Action tab, there's an action alert that highlights the importance of making sure that non-public schools are eligible for some of those public supports that are available to mitigate the effects of COVID-19. We just have a moment in our bricklayer segment to highlight an upcoming important day, Immigration Sunday. We used to hold Immigration Sunday on Epiphany. We're moving it to align with the World Day of Migration on September 27th. So Immigration Sunday is moving to September 27th in Minnesota. The theme for this year is Like Jesus Christ, forced to flee, welcoming, protecting, promoting, and integrating eternally displaced Persians. You can find more about ways in which you can observe and learn more about Immigration Sunday, opportunities to take action to support immigrants at the state and federal level at our website, mncatholic.org slash Immigration Sunday. Again, mncatholic.org slash Immigration Sunday. Immigration Sunday coming up in Minnesota and World Day of Migration around the world, September 27th. That's all the time we have for today, but you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send your questions to show at mncatholic.org. Catch up on past episodes of our show at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for us, The Bridge Builder, on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks so much for listening, and have a blessed day.